My name is Joe Blake. I'm the CEO of Artomatics, and I've been with the company for just coming up to two years now. Joe Blake's company, Artomatics, uses AI to help empower artists. This is Move Your Business to the United States from Mount Bunnell Advisors, the consultants who guide you on expanding stateside. I'm Nastran Tavakoli-Far, or Naz in short, and we're speaking to companies who've made the move to find out their pearls of wisdom and any words of caution. Mount Bunnell CEO Sebastian Sauerborn will also be answering your queries about expanding to the US. So send your questions over to info at mountbunnell.com. We've also put that email address in the show notes. There are many conflicting theories regarding the importance of learning the basic fundamentals of art. Some feel that an artist should be relatively free from formal art training, rules, and outside influence. On the other hand, there are those who are very academic and technical in their approach. They feel that everything should be done according to a set of predetermined rules. Regardless of these basic different lines of thought, there is one basic step that is important to both, the learning of fundamentals that help one to express graphically his ideas and emotions. Sebastian, our producer Emmett Glynn and myself recently went to Dublin to speak to Irish companies who've expanded to America. Now this week's guest is interesting because Automatics have a lot of clients in America, but our guest cautions against opening an office there. Automatics use AI to help artists to create 3D content, and they're being used by major gaming studios. We caught up with CEO Joe Blake to find out more. Artomatics is a software company that provides solutions to anybody who's creating 3D content. Um, Our primary market uh, over the years has been essentially the entertainment space. So that would be typically video games and VFX. Um, Those industries have gone through dramatic transformation at the moment in that it simply costs too much and takes too long to create content. And it's an industry that's ripe for transformation. So Artomatics has set about automating large parts of the 3D content creation process using AI, machine learning, and other technical approaches. So we're seeking to dramatically change how content is created going forward. So like with content, for example, it's a a game. And then you would be able to create a lot of, of the... 3D content within the game through your engine. That's right, yeah. So traditionally, um, most people would probably think of video games uh, as being, you know, the leading edge of how of 3D content and where 3D is used. Uh, and that's a massive industry. Uh, you know, it's a $100 billion plus industry. And 60% of their costs uh, relate to the creation of content. So that's a that's a big big number, and that's a, a big issue for the industry. Um, but moving into the kind of the modern day, three D content is no longer just the domain of entertainment. Three D content is the cornerstone of how uh, products are visualized and promoted across multiple media. So going forward, it is likely you know within the next two to three years, if you're doing a PowerPoint presentation, it will be in three D. It won't be in two D. Uh, today, if you're going online to shop for textiles, fashion, if you're you know picking out your new car, you're using 3D 
assets, 3D materials that have been created uh, using technologies and approaches that have been pioneered within the gaming space. So uh, within the next kind of year or so, probably 40% of our business will be outside the entertainment sector. Interesting. So this is, for example, when I shop online for clothes and I have a 3D model of the person, of, of that particular piece of clothes on a, on a model, on a dummy, that would be that's an application for that. that. That's exactly right. So today you want your online shopping experience to be as close to reality as possible. You want to be able to really zoom in and see the you know, fine grain uh, detail of the fabric, of the textile, uh, of the color, uh, and modern screens now enable you to do that um, so that you can make an informed buying decision online. Um, most, you know, online retailers in furniture, in fashion, and so on will tell you that their conversion rates go up by anything from 10 to 20 percent. Uh, if they are able to, to provide high-quality, high-fidelity 3D experience online. Amazing. And, and your technology sort of automates and thus increases the, the speed of producing those materials. That's exactly right. So uh, there simply aren't enough 3D artists in the world today to meet demand. So um, for that reason, uh, you know, putting in place what we sometimes call a suite of kind of artist assistant tool sets to work alongside artists to take away and automate a lot of the more painstaking, uh, the more time-consuming, the more expensive stuff that simply gets in the way um, and automate that just dramatically increases the output, dramatically increases productivity and reduces costs. Amazing. So, Joe, can you give a little bit of the history of the company? So, when you started and also when you decided to, to go out into the US? Uh, so, the company is almost five years old now. Um, and it was founded by uh, a guy called Dr. Eric Risser, uh, who's originally from the US, from Florida. Uh, he, 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 you know, he was a very bright uh, kid who loved games, loved gaming, um, you know, started to focus more and more on maths and physics um, um, and got a scholarship to uh, Columbia University in New York where he started, and that's where the genesis of Artematics really came about. So he started to focus in on a, an increasingly narrow space which he termed or he coined creative AI. And that's really where, where Artematics started. He found his way to Dublin um, uh, in order to uh, complete his PhD in Trinity College Dublin. And at that stage, he was very much focused in on an, a, a very narrow space uh, of creative AI and is probably one of the five leaders globally in this sector today. Um, the timing was, was very good for him in that, uh, and for AI generally, I suppose, in that computing power has now almost caught up with the idea that he had originally seven years ago, which was utterly impractical at the time. But now with the power of, you know, uh, GPU technology and the affordability of GPU technology, largely through companies like NVIDIA, uh, you know, the availability of data through the internet, um, 
the time is right now for AI to take off across a load of fields, but particularly this one. So, um, you know, arguably the product is a lot more than five years old because Eric's been working on it for essentially his whole adult life. Uh, the company is five years old. The first two years, two and a half years were um, getting together some seed funding in order to build a very small but, but highly skilled team to complete the research that, that Eric was leading. The second half of the company, company um, was about, was, was well, it was when I joined, we then started to raise uh, more money to put in place an engineering team and a commercial team uh, in order to go to market. Um, and that's, that's I suppose, that's, that's the potted history. And the company, uh, it was founded here in Dublin? It was, yeah. And um, when did the company decide to open an office out in the U.S.? Our focus on the U.S. has been there since day one. Uh, you know, you don't set up a company to sell to, at the time, the gaming industry without absolutely focusing on the West Coast in the U.S., where, you know, many, many of these large publishers are based. So, um, since the very early stages, we set about to speak to industry very, very closely uh, to tell them about, you know, what was at the time an idea, uh, a vision, uh, to share with them some of the approaches we were taking. Um, and, you know, we attended, so there's, there's, there's two main conferences every year that are kind of must-haves for us. One is GDC, which is a game developers conference in March, and the second one is SIGGRAPH, which is, you know, where the any new research in this space gets published. And, you know, for five, six years, Eric has attended those conferences and more laterally, we as a company have been attending those conferences. And what we've used them to do is to, to reach out to and speak directly to our target audience. So before, you know, arguably we wrote a line of production code, many of those large publishers knew exactly what we were doing, felt as though they were inputting into our plans and have felt very much part of uh, um, the automatic story. So I'd argue that that's, that's when we first had our presence in the US. Mm -hmm. uh, we've, you know, we're based in Ireland, but Ireland is absolutely not our target market. And so um, can you tell us a little bit about opening up in the in the US, because you have a you have an office out there now. Well, we have we have a number of sub offices because um, we're only a small team, so it, it didn't make sense to have, you know, w one office particularly on the west coast because it's highly expensive to be honest. Um, so what we have is as we've grown out the team, generally we've selectively handpicked key people to put in the US. So, for example. Uh, We've hired uh, one guy who's a principal researcher for us, who's got 25 years experience, uh, specifically in, in uh, a related field to Eric's field. Um, you know, there isn't somebody like him anywhere in Europe. So we've deliberately handpicked people like that who can do two things. One, who can contribute directly to product, but also who can inform us about particular industry verticals and niche markets. Uh, and what the feature set needs to be to take us there. So they give us that instant credibility and so on. So for us and for me, it's absolutely not about opening an office in the US. Uh, frankly, if I never had to do that, you know, it, 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 it wouldn't bother me too much. 
because frankly it's it's very expensive. What it is about is selectively handpicking the right talent um, to get us to where we need to be. So the other uh, key resource that uh, actually we're currently headhunting for is um, a product evangelist. Um, and so we deliberately want that person to be in North America because uh, we want somebody to have, you know, 10 to 15 years experience working in industry as a technical artist. We probably want that person to come from um, one of the large AAA publishers, uh, again, a to tell us, you know, what else we should be doing with an eye on that market, but B, to give us instant credibility again, to be able to speak their language and so on. So uh, for me, it's less about the logistics of opening an office and more about the resources and the people. Uh, I don't really care geographically whether somebody works from home or works from an office. And is the is is your industry or the industry you're in, is that all concentrated on the West Coast, California, Silicon Valley, or is that... Initially... For our market research, I would say yes. In terms of our go-to-market and sales traction, no. Because the markets that I've just described are global. They're global markets. So automotive is a global market. Textiles, fashion, furniture, aviation are global industries. So no. But in terms of having our finger of, on the pulse of of what's happening uh, in research uh, and being at the forefront of product development, yes, uh, that's that's where we want to be. Uh, the industries that I've mentioned, you know, GDC and SIGGRAPH are both generally held on the West Coast every year. And, and does this also include um, investors? Uh, do you have any investors uh, from there, from the West Coast? We do not. Uh, so the stage we're at at the moment is we've raised um, seed funding and seed extension funding. The next round will be next year, which will be a Series A and would likely take in money in, 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 in the States. Uh, up until now, we haven't needed to raise a larger round. Uh, we've been reasonably sustainable. Um, but as we go faster and expand the team, both from an engineering point of view and a go-to-market point of view next year, yeah, it'll make more sense to, to look at the US. Yeah, it makes sense. So, Joe, you talked about these key people you've selected um, in, across, across the US. I wanted to know um, how many people are there and why have you needed them to be out there on the ground? And how, how has that shaped how you guys do things here in Dublin? Um, so... We see Dublin, Dublin is our head office and Dublin is where we lead our research and engineering teams and that's unlikely to change uh, except for exceptional talent uh, like, like the guy I described earlier on um, who can, you know, A, fill a, a technical hole and a technical gap, gap and it is a scarce resource so therefore we can't be selective about location but also by having him based in the US, he gives us instant credibility into the, into the industries that, that he's worked in. And that, that's interesting. So you mean um, having someone on the ground is more likely to get you clients from the US? I suppose two things. One, in terms of just basic operations, yes. So as managers, we, you know, we need to adapt our management approach in order to cater to the fact that people are remote in the first instance and in a different time zone, secondly. So um, we have demand generation, a demand generation resource based on the East Coast. 
um, which means that, you know, simple things like we arrange our team meetings in the afternoon uh, and so on. Uh, typically, we would have a morning stand-up for engineering teams at uh, half nine or 10 a.m. So now that we have engineering resources on the East Coast, we need to make sure that they stay part of that. So we will be pushing that out to kind of lunchtime and, you know, practical things like that. We've needed to improve our... Um, video conferencing to make sure that it's high quality, you know, and, and people genuinely feel like they can properly attend meetings and contribute to meetings and not, you know, not just be listening to a scratchy line with, with poor audio quality and whatnot. So we've definitely stepped it up there. Um, and as managers, just, you know, we need to be skilled and tooled in terms of uh, even just HR practices and processes and things and, and things of that nature. Our contracts need to be compliant with, with US law and stuff. Um, so there's there's those practical things. Um, in terms of go to market, um, we um, I would say as we've started to spend more money on sales and marketing, we've tried to become uh, more visual in terms of how we tell our story. Um, and as I said, we've now you know invested in more expensive, uh, more experienced resources in 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 that sense who've dramatically improved our product marketing. Um, and that's been important because we're now hiring people from the industry who've got, you know, many years experience in the industry and know, and can can um, tell what is a very compelling story, but tell it in a more visual way. So I think that's, that's definitely changed. Um, I think our customers, um, you know, don't always expect or even want us to be on site with them. But the fact that we can be and the fact that we can offer to come in and help and do face-to-face training and offer face-to-face support, uh, particularly for initial rollouts and so on, you know, it just, it's it's a nicer experience for them. It builds credibility. And as I say, very often <laughs> they actually don't want us on site uh, for, for confidentiality reasons and so on. But the fact that we can offer helps. So we've been taking questions all season. Send them in. It's info at mountbernell.com. So Sebastian, we've had a question, David from London. He wants to know about the IRS. He says that I always hear about people getting into trouble with the IRS. That's the tax authorities in the US and then never being able to open a company again. Is this true? Yes, that's a very good question. I think a lot of um, our listeners will fear that if they get into trouble into IRS, they go into prison state away, the, the bank accounts are frozen, and that's it. So they are afraid that even if they make an honest mistake, which can always happen in business taxes, you're ruined, um, your personal property is on the line, and you know maybe you go, to, you go to jail. So in my experience, that's certainly not the case. As with any tax authorities, uh, I would be extremely um, careful and, and do everything properly. Uh, and of course, I would always communicate swiftly, openly and professionally with the IRS in any matter. But it is my experience that dealing with the IRS, although it can take a lot of time sometimes, you know, I mean, uh, they take their time to respond. Um, oftentimes, uh, things can be solved uh, quite easily. And uh, even if there's, for example, a fine, I mean, I'm just thinking about one particular fine now. So as a company that's owned by a foreign uh, individual, not a U.S. resident, you have to file a particular fine, uh, form that U.S. residents don't have to file. And so a lot of U.S. accountants don't know that. 
Anyway, if you file the form only one day late, there's a $10,000 penalty straight away, right? For every case. And you might have filed, you, you may need to be obligated to file three forms, so then it's 30,000 straight away, one day late. So in my experience, very often the IRS waives these um, uh, fines if you give a good enough reason uh, why that happened, because you didn't know about it, you know, because you had the wrong advice. So I think it's definitely possible to talk with them. Um, I would definitely be um, extremely cautious um, about, um, you know, dealing with them in a very um, reliable and, and professional manner. So get, get professional advice so it helps you writing those letters. But other than that, I don't think you have to worry about anything. Does this fear of the IRS put any of your clients off from wanting to expand to the US? Well, it certainly makes them hesitate. I don't think it would put them off, but again, they think they need, you know, maybe lots of lawyers, insurance policies. They need to make things really in, in a really complicated, need to do things in a really complicated fashion. I don't think that's the case, um, but it's um, important to know what you have to do, to know your obligations, to know the law, to have proper advisors um, and get it done properly and uh, don't worry about it too much. Great. Thanks, Sebastian. So send us your questions. It's info at mountbernal.com. We've put that in the show notes. We're going to be taking questions every episode in this season. Art is an individual creative experience. The greater the knowledge one possesses, the greater will be the experience. It is hoped that this motion picture will help to start you toward great fun in the wonderfully exciting field of art. And so a couple of times you've said that you aren't interested in opening an office out in the US and you'd rather not do that. Um, so this is quite an interesting point because a lot of companies we talk to, they really want to have a presence and have people on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of people who are listening who are in that stage of deciding whether they should move their company. Mm -hmm. What would be questions that you think they should ask themselves mm -hmm. about whether they actually need to do that at all? Yeah, so um, I would say the... The decision to go into any new mar new geography, particularly North America, uh, being as large as it is, is uh, the one thing that you need to get right is focus. So who are your target audience? Exactly who are your target audience? Now, w we have been able to get that down to 25 names, 25 brands, 25 global publishers um, who we want to talk to um, who we absolutely need to understand what we do and, and to get our message in front of them. Um, having an office in New York or Boston or San Francisco is not going to help us to do that. So what we need is first-class marketing. Um, what we need is to um, be where they hang out, and they most definitely hang out at the two conferences that I've mentioned previously. Um and we, you know, that gives us a nice opportunity to meet with their senior team and their artists and their technical directors twice a year. And we absolutely make it our mission to, to do that. And we travel as a team. We plan for certainly, you know, a month or two months in advance to make sure that we execute like crazy against those two conferences. Um, and if we need to spend more time over there and visit them on site, absolutely, we can do that. That's not an issue. And we can, you know, when we go to GDC, we will generally tend to spend at least two weeks over there. Um, in terms of the consumption of your software, so how you sell and how they consume your software, in our case, again, it's, um, it's desktop software. 
we make it easy for people to um, uh, test. Uh, we make it, you know, easily downloadable. We make sure there's lots of uh, supporting documentation. We double down on our proactive support. So our support isn't reactive at all. It's very much proactive. We will monitor the metrics. We'll monitor monitor usage data, and we'll reach out to people directly if we think that they're, you know, having problems or if we think that they're not using it as they should be. So we try and be on the front foot, front of front of mind all the time. Um, and again. Having a physical office doesn't help us to do that. Um, sorry to labour the point. Um, um, but what what would be the advice you'd give companies who are in that decision making process of should we go out there, should we not? What what would be your do's and don'ts? Um, so <clears throat> I would obsess on product market fit, as I said before. So. Go out of your way to uh, spend quality time almost in workshop mode with those uh, with that target audience. Spend lots of time whiteboarding your ideas, explaining what you're building, why you're building it, what the problems it solves, and make sure that they validate that uh, every step of the way. Um, as soon as you can put an early alpha of a product into their hands, do it. Uh, and you start to build up a trusted partner relationship with them. Um, if you've, even if you've gone through those two steps and people are telling you, yeah, this is great, this is great stuff, and they're not prepared to, make, to take the next step to test your software, even that itself is telling you something. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, that they're not prepared to put the time into evaluating your software. If that is the case, well, then your software is clearly missing something. Mm-hmm. It's not compelling enough for them to want to do that. Um, that's a hugely val- valuable cycle, and that's what—that's where I would be spending any precious resources that we have, rather than in bricks and mortar offices, rather than in expensive field sales or marketing. Because, as I said earlier, every dollar you spend there is worth probably a hundred dollars in sales and marketing. Mm-hmm. So, absolutely obsess about. Uh, getting that product market fit right by speaking directly to the target audience. And by all means, do that face-to-face, if you can at all, uh, over there. Um, uh, Focus on exactly who is your target market, uh, what what companies, if you can get it down to companies, and who within those companies are the right buyers. Um, They are the two things that you absolutely must get right. I think it's very interesting um, the analysis you're making because um, I know we have a lot of um, listeners who are in that tech industry and in, in enterprise uh, software and um, I think a little bit maybe there's the perception you know that you need to be in a country particularly in the US um, somebody said nothing beats boots on the ground which in a way you say too but in a different way right you essentially say there's no point to having a presence somewhere permanently. Uh, focus on the important moments, uh, be it a trade show, be it personal meetings, and make them focus the resources there and make them more intense, more better, rather than having overheads there um, that are expensive and essentially don't lead to anything. Um, and I think what you, what you are saying is that in, in that in, in your industry, um, those potential clients. 
they don't mind that because everyone is so kind of global and cosmopolitan today that they don't mind working with you through Zoom or, or, or WebEx, uh, communicating with you. Um, and that is nowadays, as far as I understand you, the accepted standard or even the preferred method because they don't want you have it. They don't want you have inside. You said they have, you know, fears of, um, you know, uh, uh, confidentiality and everything. So, so I think that's interesting for many European st startups um, in 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 that industry that it might be better not to do, uh, or it might be better to do something that's counterintuitive at least when you follow um, advice that is given a lot. Yeah. I yeah, and I'm also conscious that maybe some of this advice, some of it might be particular to our sector, but frankly, I don't think so. Good um, point, yeah. I, I'm I'm not sure that too many buyers out there want to spend lots of time with sales guys or sales, sales people anymore. Um, they want to meet uh, uh, people uh, who add value, um, who understand uh, their business, understand um, the pain points that they're going through, I can actually add value, real value. So I don't really want, you know, some of the largest AAA publishers in the world meeting um, people from Artematics who are purely salespeople. That's not going to help, I don't believe, uh, unless it's to sign a contract. Um, what I do want them meeting are um, folks from the industry who understand our software, who can apply our software to their business um, and relate it specifically to how they can create more content more quickly, to how they can declutter existing workflows, take other te technologies or tools out of the workflow to make it smoother, um, who can help them to understand how to apply artificial intelligence in often, oftentimes for the, first, for the first time within their business. Um, uh, and we see ourselves very much as not not we hope our customers also see us not just as vendors but as strategic partners taking them on a journey to leverage AI and machine learning often for the first time within their business to dramatically change their business that's who I want customers meeting how does it work then with support so do you have these offices open here 24 hours so you can do round-the-clock support for West Coast United States? Yeah, so at the moment, yeah, it's, 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 it has been a little tricky for the first few customers, um, but we would absolutely um, see any engineers that were hiring in, in the States and also into Asia later being able to provide at least second-line support, if not first-line support, um, so that we can continue to work on issues um, sort of 24-7. So, yeah, that is often kind of... Not quite front of mind, but not 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 very far behind that. Uh, as as we look at hiring, yeah. Because we have this before. We have a client. They are like a they are like a marketing agency here in Dublin, and um, so they have a lot of clients in Germany, and um, then they have a lot of clients in California. And for them, I think the sales isn't really the problem, but the supporters, right? You know, so the 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 client in whatever in San Francisco has a request. Well, change that thing on that website, you know, and and to respond with that within a few hours, and not like the next day, for twenty four hours later. That's why it's important for them to have that sort of staff locally on site, not for sales, but for these ongoing to maintain the ongoing client relationship, which goes a little bit in the same direction as you are saying. So, focus on the things that are important, right? Like dealing with 
helping uh, existing clients so they don't get frustrated by the support process. Yeah, absolutely. So today what we're what we're focusing on is making sure that our online documentation, our online videos, um, the tooling that we have around that are are quite strong so that artists can, you know, help themselves and support themselves. And um that works quite well. Um but you're absolutely right. Um particularly as we get onto the west coast and into Asia we're certainly going to have to to have dedicated support resources um, in market. Yeah, uh, for now it's not it's not a burning issue, um, but it's certainly in our plans for the new year. That makes sense. So, Joe, just to wrap up, I wanted to know what questions do you think companies should ask themselves when they're kind of considering whether they should make this move or not? It's probably likely that it's not a question of whether they move into the U.S. market. In most cases, that's probably quite clear. Uh, it's a question of how. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I said, uh, uh, personally, I think it's an, there's, a, there's an old school school of, school of thought, which is we must put sales resources on the ground and you know, great salespeople make a great company and all that kind of good stuff, which used to be true you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and that's my background. I, I I came from sales, marketing, commercial background, but that's I I really don't believe that's true anymore. And I struggle to think of an industry where it is true. Um, so to think really really smart about how you can um, be efficient with your with your dollars and your resources. Uh, to think about easier ways to get in front of your customers, and in our case, um. We've, you know, we've absolutely oriented ourselves around two large conferences every year. And by the way, we don't we don't take booths at those conferences. We book a room. We have a large meeting room, and we invite people to come to our meeting room and spend an hour to two hours with us in workshop mode, not in sales mode, in workshop mode. And you know, we literally don't leave that room for twelve hours a day for five or six days in a row. That's that's. The highest quality time, you know, I can spend, our CTO can spend, our product people can spend uh, with customers. And again, it's not salespeople. It's me. It's our CTO. It's our product people. Listening to customers, telling them what we're doing, telling them our plans, and giving them advanced warning of where we're going. That's what you should be doing. And that's what builds you credibility and respect with tier one customers rather than, you know, wheeling out the traditional sales and marketing engine. So uh, we spent our time and our energy and our money on that rather than bricks and mortar. Um, and, uh, and we did it very, very early, uh, as I said, when we were still a research company. Uh, and it's absolutely paid dividends, hugely paid, paid dividends. So for a very small company like Artematics, which is only five years old, has only launched a product this year, we know we can get a meeting in any of the AAA publishers in the world, anytime, because they know us. Okay, the world at large might know Artematics, but our top 25 target audience around the world absolutely know us, and that's why. So you're saying focus on making a really good product, and that will sell itself, in a sense. It sounds a bit simple, but yeah, that is, I guess, what I'm saying, yeah. Um, and, but that, that, that needs to start very, very early, very early. Um, and if what you're building is com- sufficiently compelling, it'll work. 
Uh, and that has been the recipe for automatics, and it has worked. And I guess you have involved um, those companies that, that you talked about now, those, those 25 companies um, from a very early stage, right? Even before you, you said, before you start to write code, um, they were basically part of the journey, so to speak. So it's a commitment into long-term relationships, uh, consistency, and also, um, I'm sure, trust and, and, and loyalty then built up because when they, when they are involved, they are kind of become stakeholders. Yeah? Even though they are, not, they are not owners, but they become stakeholders. So they have an interest in the success of the product. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, as I said, I joined only two years ago, um, uh, Artematics, And, uh, you know, I'll never forget the first GDC that I went to. First of all, I was astounded by the, the names, the brands that we were meeting, that we had secured meetings with, um, that they were coming, traveling to meet us, you know, leaving the, the conference facility to come to our meeting suite. Uh, and secondly, each and every one of them came in and said, hey, great to see you guys. You know, how have you been doing since last year when I met you last? Or, gosh, I remember the first time I met you three years ago when you showed me the early demo. They were genuinely on the journey with us and felt as though they were on the journey with us. Just to clarify one thing when I said before we write a line of code, before we write a line of production code. So we were able to show, you know, early demos, early POCs, early concepts of what we were trying to do that kind of surfaced the research that was happening, the algorithms that we were building underneath. And the deeply technical audience that we're selling to gets excited by that. They're interested in that. They're passionate about that. Uh, and they absolutely now see Artematics as the leader in that field globally, bar none. And they, I mean, this is what you said before already, but they're not really interested to talk to salespeople anyway, no. right? So they are because it wouldn't, um, I mean, it wouldn't advance their course um, at all because no. for them to get further and to, to see their own sort of products moving along, they need to talk to experts yeah. um, like yourself, you know, yeah. and not to some sales guy who has his own hidden agenda or maybe not the hidden agenda, yeah. trying to push some product, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it, everything you do has to be viewed through the lens of how does it add value to our engagement with customers. You know, even your marketing needs to be content-rich marketing. The days of content-free salespeople, you know, out there are dead, they're over. Um, we need to be thinking with our solution hats on all the time, what are the issues that we address for you. And if we're not addressing those issues, well, then we're dead, right? End of. Um, uh, so you need to make absolutely sure your messaging is correct, it's crisp, you've got your value proposition correct because it's been grounded, because it came from your audience, it came from that market. Uh, and you're right as well, you know, that the, when you can get key stakeholders feeling that they've almost been part of your journey, um, And that they, you know, can reminisce about, you know, the earlier products and some comments that they made a couple of years ago. And and uh, that's just gold dust, absolute gold dust. So they then become, uh, I suppose one point then, so if, if we're focusing on these global publishers who almost without exception have a presence in North America, um, they then, those people become your evangelists internally within global organizations um, within a, you know, I hate to name drop here, but you know, the, the Microsofts or the Sonys or the Activisions or the Ubisofts of this world, they talk internally amongst themselves, obviously, and share best practice and, and want to be the ones bringing best practice internally into the teams. 
Um, um, so they actually become your salespeople, uh, if I can put it that way. That sounds like a good place to wrap up. Could you uh, let us know where we can find find out more about what you do? Uh, well, online at artomatics.com. Uh, email us at info at artomatics.com anytime uh, and uh, we'd be delighted to, to help. This is Move Your Business to the United States for Mount Bunnell Advisors. I'm Nastran Tavakoli Far, and you just heard from Joe Blake of Artomatics. We've put their details in the show notes. Our sound engineer is Emmett Glynn and Nivena Paunovic is our podcast manager. You'll have also heard some samples from the Prelinger archives who have some great historical material from the US. We'll be back in two weeks. Send us your questions about expanding to the US. The address is info at mountbunnell.com or see the show notes. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>